la 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 You're listening to Silver Threads, the podcast celebrating 25 years of the Hares and Hyenas bookstore in Fitzroy, Melbourne. Supported by the UNESCO City of Literature Known Bookshops Fund, in association with the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives, and in partnership with Melbourne Library Service. Warning, the following program contains explicit content and themes. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Silver Threads. In this episode, we go back to June 20 in 2014 to celebrate the publication of the first English translation of Taiwanese author Xiao Miaojin's Last Words from Montmartre. With three different voices performing three of Miaojin's letters, including the book's translator Ari Larissa Heinrich, we'll hear the transcendent words of one of the finest experimentalist and modernist Chinese language writers of our generation. Thank you, Crusader. Um, this is exciting. As you, as you can see, I've got some notes. Um, I'm used to there being a sort of podium where you can hide them, but I can't hide them, so I'm just going to hold them and make it part of the performance because I sort of wrote down some things as I wanted to, you know, do a, do a decent introduction for this fantastic work. I'm going to start off with a bit of a story, <clears throat> which is true. One humid midnight in June 1995... The phone rang in the apartment I was renting in Taipei at that time. I picked up and on the other end of the line was my friend Morrow, a woman I'd met in a lesbian social and activist group I was involved in at the time at um, Taiwan University. My usually calm, composed friend's voice was broken by uncontrollable sobbing as she told me that she just received news that her close friend had died in Paris. She told me her friend's name, but young and ignorant as I was then, I'd never heard that name before, and I'm afraid I wasn't much help tomorrow that night. I just did my best to comfort her over the phone, and eventually we said goodbye and hung up. It wasn't until some months later that I finally put the pieces together and realised that Morrow had rung me the night of the death of one of Taiwan's most significant young authors, Chiu Miao Jin, who died by suicide at age just 26 in 1995, in April. <clears throat> I've started with that story as a way of underlining, I guess, um, some of the specifically queer social significance of Chiu Miaojin as an author. Um, In the Chinese-speaking literary world, I think by now, Chiu's importance is well known. Um, Ironically, it's particularly well known after her death, um, when she has received prestigious literary awards posthumously. She's had her novels and even her personal diaries republished in multiple editions and begun to be translated into other languages um, wonderfully, as we see tonight. Chiu was a groundbreaking literary modernist who produced a wholly new kind of voice in Chinese literature through through her writing. She kind of twisted and reinvented the language to write into being a new kind of subjectivity, a new kind of selfhood, intense, intellectual, profoundly alienated from the mainstream society around her and yet really passionately attached to her friends, her lovers and her mentors and profoundly interconnected into the global world of contemporary and modernist art, um, especially European and Japanese literature and film, which she kind of refers to and quotes uh, from profusely throughout her works. So we kind of know that in a way. She's a a significant author for um, contemporary and modern literature in a world sense. But beyond that broad significance, Chiu's queer significance is absolutely immense. The shockwave that spread throughout Taiwan's lesbian communities at the news of her death is indicative of that kind of importance, and that's what I wanted to kind of point to with a phone call from my friend that night. I bet there were lots of that similar kind of phone call um, going on in those sort of just pre-internet days as people found, found out about the awful news. <clears throat> Jill's brief adult years coincided with the very first stirrings of organised queer movements in Taiwan. The early 1990s was a period when gay and lesbian social life was diversifying out from its previous confinement to underground bar scenes into political activism and more public or open forms of identity and social life, especially at that time on university campuses, which is where I had met my friend Morrow in the, in the social group, and it's also the location for Chiu's first novel, Notes of a Crocodile, which I believe Ari out there hiding somewhere 
is also translating. Is that? Oh, it's actually a different translation. Sorry, um, but, it was but it's coming out. You're in, yes, no doubt. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's it's coming out, which is it's fantastic news. It's a camp, a kind of like a queer campus novel. For, for the newly emerging lesbian communities at that time, and indeed ever since, Chiu Miao Jin's stories and novels were required reading. Everyone I knew at that time had copies on their bookshelf. Um, in her narrators, and I guess this is why she's so popular, Chiu created a voice with which many young, middle-class, intellectual women like herself could easily identify. In fact, a character name from her first novel, uh, Ladzi, as what the protagonist's um, nickname has become a sort of one of the Mandarin slang terms for, for lesbian or les in um, Chinese-speaking communities in Taiwan and elsewhere since that time. Sorry about the awkward, you know, pretend it's, pretend it's part of the performance, as I said, awkward paper shuffling. Um, seriously yet playfully and never with recourse to the facile prop of so-called positive images quite the reverse in some ways, Chiu's works explore the full spectrum of emotional responses to social marginalisation, from the negative queer affects of shame, anger, anger and ressentiment, to irony, insouciance and rich joy in the emotional sustenance of friends, friends lovers and co-conspirators. I guess it's, it's, I kind of cringe a little bit when I see comparisons like this, kind of cross-cultural comparisons of like, oh, this song is just like this song in the Western tradition or this author is just like this other author. But um, if someone held a knife, a knife to my throat and forced me to think about a comparison in some senses for Chiu and her significance um, in the Anglophone world, I might in some ways come up with someone like Radcliffe Hall um, with the intensely intimate self-portrait in Last Words from Montmartre, which Ari has translated, standing as, you know, in some ways like a well of loneliness kind of work, but with major, major stylistic differences, um, all to Chiu's advantage, I think. <clears throat> Chiu's fiction is intensely compelling. She's one of those writers whose words come alive on the page to draw the reader into her own very particular inner world. But her language is really difficult... <laughs> She plays with the structure of sentences. She invents irregular syntaxes. She startles the reader with highly unusual and unexpected word choices and metaphors. And like I said before, there's direct and indirect citation of the works of other authors and filmmakers in a whole array of different um, languages um, as a hallmark of her, of her work. So in a sentence, I'm in awe of Ari Heinrich's achievement in translating last words from Montmartre into, in, into English. In this translation, he's not only managed the mind-bendingly challenging technical task, which is already hard, hard enough, of rendering Chiu's queer prose into an English version that retains both the sense and the unique, the unique stylistics of the original, but even more importantly, he has somehow magically, alchemically almost, reproduced in English the unique tone and feel of Chiu's writing and the inner worlds it conveys. Its inimitable mix of intellectualism and eroticism, deadly earnestness and playfulness, emotional intensity and stylistic experimentation, and the casual eclecticism of Chiu's cross-cultural referencing across French, British, Chinese and Japanese literary and filmic traditions. It's really no small feat. Ari is the perfect translator for this monumental task, as, as he's proven. Like Chiu herself, he's something of a polymath, not to mention a polylinguist, with deep scholarly knowledge of all of the traditions and languages from which Chiu's text draws. He's also a beautiful and sensitive writer in his own right, as a good translator has to be. And it's no exaggeration to say that this translation of Chiu's Chinese text is good enough, and it feels natural enough, um, to feel as though it might have been an English language original text. You know, when you read it, it sort of it doesn't feel translated at all, I don't think, which is a truly stunning achievement in terms of the work of translation. <laughs> Ursula Dawkins. Um, but um, before, before Ursula comes up, I'd just like to say, you know, everyone, I assume, you know, you're going to buy the book, read the book, revel in the gorgeous translation and maybe find your, your life... Um, different after encountering the kind of twin brilliances of Chiu Miao Jin and Ari. Um, I'll just say not much, but um, the book is written as a sequence of letters. So um, this is from letter two. Zhu, it is now one o'clock in the morning of April 28, 1995. 
Two hours ago, I buried Bunny. I buried Bunny in the little triangular park near Rue de Montsenis, just like you asked. I didn't feel depressed. I felt satisfied. Bunny's body, body had laid... Sorry, I need my glasses off. Sorry. Bunny's body had lain there in my room for two whole days. It was the first time I'd ever experienced the death of a loved one, of a life connected to mine. Extinguished just like that, gone from existence. But the loneliness following Bunny's death caught me off guard, knocked me flat, deprived me of any fleeting sense of recovery. I was like a tripod newly balanced, then a leg suddenly gets sawed off. The death-filled afternoon air thickened with misery and I couldn't eat or drink. Maybe you wonder why I torture myself like this, why I don't have even the slightest immunity to it. I don't know. I'm too receptive by nature, what Buddhists might call a kind of openness. It's my disease and it's my gift. It's my treasure and it's my fatal flaw. This morning I was anxious about burying Bunny. I had promised you an earth burial rather than a water burial for Bunny so that you could visit the grave. But my friends all said I'd never find a good spot and the pet cemetery was too expensive. Kamira even went so far as to suggest throwing the body in the garbage. The body had been sitting there for two days already. If I had put off the burial any longer, it would have started to decay and I would have failed to fulfil your wishes. This afternoon, I finally resolved to just pull myself together and lay Bunny peacefully to rest. Then you wouldn't have to worry about either of us. Daddy would take care of Bunny. At the stroke of 11, I picked up the box with Bunny in it, put on my backpack full of tools and stole out the door. All the gates to the park were locked shut. So that nobody would see me, I chose a remote corner, climbed over the wall, made my way into the wooded area and, keeping an eye out for the police, hid behind some of the thicker bushes and began to dig. The soil was soft and loose from the rain. After I dug the right size hole, I decided to take Bunny's body out of the box and place it directly in contact with the earth so it would decompose more quickly. I figured Bunny would enjoy becoming nourishment for those big plants. The picture of father and mother, the pair of farewell letters that they wrote, the plant that had preceded Bunny in death, the big hairbrush and a ball of toilet paper that Bunny liked to play with, all were buried with the body. The body was still in good condition. It even seemed softer than two days ago. I covered it in a blue blanket, put some of Bunny's food pellets on top, then pushed all the dirt back into the hole and tamped it tightly with my foot. Suddenly I wanted to cry, thinking how I hadn't failed you, how I'd never again see that adorable little white body, how I'd finally experienced firsthand what it means to bury with your own hands, how Haruki Murakami had described burying two cats in six years. How many bunnies and how many secret loves would I have to bury in the beautiful, lonely city of Paris? What I was burying with my own hands was actually my love for you and Bunny. Has my love for both of you really ended up in the ground with nothing left but fantasy and echoes? Xu, you've misunderstood me. Perhaps I wasn't completely fit to be Bunny's daddy, but I had never been abusive. I cared for Bunny with my whole heart, and when Bunny died, I was a brave daddy. The sixth track on your CD, Saint-Saëns Softly Awakes My Heart, speaks to my feelings about Bunny's death. Xu, enter the park through the gate on the church side and look for the tall tree behind and to the right of the second bench. The final resting place of our beloved Bunny and of our love is beneath a little mound of earth with a few scraggly weeds and a little champagne rose in the little triangular park near Rue du Mont-Senis. This is from letter six, and it's an excerpt. It's called An Archive. For dinner Sunday... 
Jingjin took me to a seafood restaurant called La Crie, which means street peddler. She asked me, Why bother writing to someone who doesn't deserve your love? Maybe it has nothing to do with the other person, but it is for my own love. Qingjin, you know marriage is more than just a certificate or a ritual. It's a kind of commitment to oneself. Yes, I agree. But you realize this person is not worthy of your love anymore. I know. Then what can she offer you? There's nothing she can offer me. It was my last chance to see Qingjin. I had returned from Tokyo, but on May 10, she would fly back to Taiwan for work and also see her son and daughter. At the end of June, she would return to France and move into her new apartment. We had spent many nights talking candidly and were totally at ease with each other. A week earlier, she had sent me a letter, but I put off sending my reply until yesterday, Sunday. Qingjin's feelings for me could not be more obvious. I only needed to respond. We talked until half past midnight, and then I saw her home, but we didn't kiss goodnight or say anything that would take it further. But my sense was that like Xuan Xuan, she could love me without regret or complaint. The streets glowed with lights on the taxi ride home. I think I was in Strasbourg when I prayed for a woman who could really love me, and now she had miraculously appeared. As I thought back to her mysterious appearance a few weeks ago to now, I still wasn't sure if I could truly love her or not. But I was sure that she was the first woman in years of stumbling around who could be right for me. I didn't tell her I was waiting for her to return from Taipei. Nor did I reveal any sign that I might change the nature of our relationship when she returned. I had been trying to persuade her that my desires could never transform instantaneously. I have behaved like a self-righteous friend. My reserve led her to mistakenly believe that I was sensitive about her age, that my feeling for Yong and for Shu had to do with their youthful female bodies. I dropped so many hints that she was wrong in thinking the situation hopeless and the obstacles insurmountable, though she has also listened to way too many monologues about my love for Shu. Facing the tombstone of my love, she was at a loss. But not everything I said was true. She would be a pretty good match for me, and it's possible that I could fall in love with her. Age and physique don't matter to me. What I need is time. She wouldn't know any of this. Okay. Um, last night was the third time I'd gone to one of the center's dinners for women. And it was my second time attending an administrative committee meeting. I never officially paid membership dues, and so for each vote, I didn't dare raise my hand pour or contre, for or against, causing the other members to treat me as an outsider. Although for the most part, they smiled benignly at me. I felt quite at ease with them, and I enjoyed the meeting. The center was another home for me in Paris. Before the cocktail party, they invited Geneviève to say a few words. Geneviève was an older lesbian who brought warmth to my heart whenever I saw her. The word lesbian is a term that is really only meaningful in political contexts. She was also a political figure and a publisher for whom gay rights was a cause. Her press is called Geneviève Pastre and specializes in publishing works related to lesbian and women's sexuality and is very radical. In person, she's quite soft-spoken and yet sharp and straightforward and really inspiring. Laurence is one of the head organizers. She spoke forcefully and animatedly. Her casual, short brown hair made her look so much like a young Shui Yao visiting my place for the first time. That and the green and brown military trousers she wore. She was also about the same height as Shui Yao and Xiaoyong. The cumulative effect recalled my earliest memory of Shui Yao. Laurence caught my eye immediately. I had been stealing glances at her for the last two meetings, but she never met my eye. During the meeting, she disappeared a few times. 
She gave the impression of being a little cold and unsociable, but in fact, she was very bold. At the first meeting, Laurence proposed that the university screen a certain lesbian movie that everyone present would attend. But when no one agreed to an action that would expose their individual identities, she breezily declared, fine, no problem, I'll go by myself. Yesterday evening, as Geneviève spoke, Laurence remained standing and watched her from a distance, occasionally disappearing into the backstage washroom. Maybe she was having a quiet moment with someone else. I like her style. Her personality was totally different from Shui Yao, but she, it was contained in Shui Yao's physical form. At 9 p.m., they turned off the lights and lit candles all around the lecture hall, and some dance music drifted out from behind the stage. I hastily gathered my coat, scarf, hat, and backpack so I could escape. I didn't know half of the French girls there, and I didn't have the nerve to ask anyone to dance. Some girls had already paired off and were making out in the romantic candlelight, making me feel kind of awkward. And suddenly, Laurence approached me. Ne partez pas, vous pourriez danser avec moi? Don't go, will you dance with me? Je suis pressé pour voir un ami chinois qui habite près d'ici. I've got to run to see a Chinese friend who lives nearby. Il n'y a rien de pressé, vous avez l'impression très seule. It can't be so urgent, you seem so lonely. As she was speaking, she came closer to me and lightly took my hand, leading me toward the door. Parce que j'ai un cœur brisé, because I have a broken heart. I surprised myself by having the courage to trust her from the start. Perhaps it was because I'd just finished writing she the letter about being stained and my inner landscape the night before. Sooner or later, I'd have to say it out loud. Why on earth am I weeping? Is it because of what Xiaoyong said in Tokyo and Laurence last night that made me realize the more fundamental principles in life? My tears are forming fierce resistance within me. I don't want to mail the letter to Xu anymore. The sky is already growing light over Montmartre as I hesitate, unwilling to waste a trip to the post office. So I'll leave the letter unfinished and skip directly to tomorrow's letter. Shoo, my soul is lonely, lonely in a lonely way that I'm unwilling to express to you. How can I describe the depth of my loneliness to someone who cast away my soul, cast away my life, brought me to the brink of death without a care in the world, someone who caused me such catastrophic suffering with hardly a care and cruelly condemned me to live alone in another country far from home? I hate you a little less now, but there is still this profound loneliness. I've tried to reconcile the paradoxical forces of love and hate so razor sharp that you've driven into my heart, and I have, and I have struggled silently, alone. While you're hurting me, you're cheating on me, you're acting out in those ways have lessened. Understanding you, let alone trusting you, is still beyond me. You're used to being passive, comfortable hiding in silence. Even the effort of uttering a single word or really the effort of any action to ease my pain is too much for you so that for you the most natural, the most peaceful solution is to let me waste away. I'll never understand how you became so cold and so cruel as if you've convinced yourself that coldness and cruelty are part of your true nature as if you're so self-righteous that you won't even allow me to return to my own country so as to keep me from interfering with your life or hurting you. Forgive me for being so open. I remember visiting you in April and being so utterly disappointed with you. I thought you didn't love me and that you prioritised your job, your family and everything, everything, everything in the world over me. You weren't even willing to spend your vacations in Paris. You said that you were just humouring me when you talked about coming to Paris. Granted, this was a long-standing tradition of yours. I was right all along about the thoughts behind your feelings. Back then, at least, you were willing to say you'd come see me. Not anymore. Now you can't wait for me to disappear and leave you alone. 
Back then, I had limited resources in Paris. I didn't have as many friends as I do now, and my French wasn't good enough to ameliorate my loneliness, my frustration. I had used up all my arrows and was out of provisions and couldn't endure a life of solitude, of waiting and longing for you. The only choice I had was to cut you off, but in reality, it was just an attempt to escape my desperate longing for you. But there was no escape. I felt like a gorilla shackled in leg irons, struggling to break out with all my might, head wounded, streaming blood, but to no avail. The pain erupted like molten lava, scorching and melting away all our intimacy. You didn't make up your mind in time. You couldn't figure out how to be with me, so my furious fucking anger obliterated any childlike faith you had in me and your uncompromising coldness toward me deepened. I believe you hated me too, and this hatred was expressed as coldness. And here I've arrived at the crux of the matter. It was at this point your eros started to split into bits of love and desire. You still gave me some pieces of this love by taking care of me physically. But soon your hatred began to manifest itself as indifference, rejection, a shutting down. So my desire became unhinged and my pain excruciating. When you stop wanting me, withdrawing your eros, I go insane, truly insane. I've reached an apex of insanity. Ha ha. Why am I laughing? Because I have a fatal, mortal, terminal passion for you. Ultimately, I have no choice but death, an unconditional allegiance, an eternal bond to you. I decided to forget you, to transform myself into someone entirely different from my old self a vital personality. Suddenly it seemed so easy, so entirely possible to imagine. It would be so easy to cast off the defining features of my old self that I couldn't rid myself of before. Since returning from Tokyo, I can feel the nature of my sexuality changing, gradually changing, a tectonic change so mysterious and private that I initially wasn't sure what was happening or what triggered it. I could feel myself becoming a woman, according to some basic biological definition of woman anyway, or perhaps just becoming a capital W woman. My period became extremely regular. One morning I was dreaming about you and I suddenly woke up. I thought I'd gotten my period and in fact I had at exactly that moment. It felt kind of mysterious. I also dreamed I had long feminine hair, and in the dream I was aware that I was enjoying my appearance and that my face was becoming more beautiful, a feminine sort of beauty. Once, Xingjin looked intently at my face and told me I was very beautiful in a way that could be attractive to both men and women. In the dream, I could actually sense that my facial features and my behavior were becoming more feminine my sexuality also began to take on a more receptive quality. I still fantasized about you, but the way I had loved you and made love to you now seemed more of a desire for you to love me and make love to me. And I felt a sexual relationship with a man was possible, just the sex. Or perhaps I should say I was starting to misunderstand that a perfect sexual relationship could be possible with a warm, sincere man, someone with a quality of pure masculinity like Eric from the doctoral program. The possibilities multiplied so fast in such a short time that I couldn't grasp it. I frightened myself with the thought that an intellectual and spiritual man like Eric might materialize and find me attractive, and then I'd really become a woman. It was entirely possible. I had changed into another person. I was, so, I was scared to death, as it was a way, the perfect way, to escape from my erotic and romantic desires for you. What frightened me wasn't the lure of lust or of betraying you, but of leaving you. The lure of silently 
with hardly a breath, taking leave of your life and disappearing forever in a kind of eternal self-cancellation so that you could never find me again. She walked over to my desk, flipped some pages of my novel and asked me to read it to her in Chinese. I said that I'd already sent out ten chapters and that I only had copies of the fifth and eleventh chapters and was in the middle of writing the sixteenth. She said, no problem, that when I was dead I could read it to her in hell. She sat on my black office chair and I sat on the carpet. I spread my manuscript out on her lap and then read aloud, one page at a time, and understanding absolutely no Chinese, she listened quietly, almost not daring to breathe, just scratching her head from time to time. When your novel's finished, I'll take you to Greece, okay, she said, almost immediately after I'd finished reading the last line. We tiptoed into the bathroom. Water drenched our naked bodies, and she kissed me all over. My ears, the roots of my hair, my belly, my breasts, my navel, my abdomen, my pubic hair, my vulva, my back. She liked me to sit first on a chair and would lick my whole body with her hot tongue until my body was standing on edge. And then she'd lightly take my hand and lead me to the bed. Her arms were long and powerful. When she held my body, it was as if that power might squeeze out my soul. She murmured sweet things in French into my ear. Her tongue was the only one I'd ever encountered that possessed an electric charge, and when it coiled around me, my soul simply took flight. In Tarkovsky's last film, The Sacrifice, an old man goes one night to beg for help from Maria, and Maria uses her body to console the old man, and the two of them float up and hover in the air over the bed. She knew the right time to push her cunt against mine, making me come in a heartbeat. When her own body reached a certain degree of arousal, she'd bore into me like a small snake and slide swiftly into the mouth of my groin. She knew what rhythm to follow and when to enter my cunt, to brush against all those obscure curves, the creased cliffs, the canals, climbing the steep slope of arousal and suddenly planting a crimson flag there the virgin mother of burgeoning flowers reproducing asexually and gushing forth in clusters from the slender internal palace. This is an excerpt from, um, from letter five. Shoe, my most beloved shoe, how can I finally make you understand what I've experienced firsthand of our tree of love? Shu, listen to me. You're my life. You're my everything. I belong to you, past, present, and future, and forever and forevermore. The words to belong have been there from the beginning, but I didn't understand now until now that it meant you. What I understood as to belong was very different and had nothing to do with you nor with your impoverished love. There was no comparison for me. To belong to anyone, it's not a choice. To love you is a suffocating form of fate for me. It upsets me that you aren't maturing at the same pace as me because it's you, Shu. Any sentient being can see that I belong to you and no one else. Here is my life bound. I am ready to accept my fate. Though sometimes I sigh to the heavens for sending me someone to belong to who matures at such a vastly different pace, in truth there are also times that I can't stand how you treat me. Lately, especially, I felt unloved and cursed. And as much as you treat me like an enemy, and as much as I sense your cold indifference, all these things are part of a story where everything happens for a reason and sentiment is genuine. It's hard to say whether I'd like you now. Who were you this year? 
someone who deserved my love? I refuse to believe that this year's you represents the whole you. Because I understand you. I understand your maturation process. I can predict what gifts and what challenges lie ahead of you. And I know the effect my irrational explosions had on you. Your loathing for me. Your disgust. You weren't born that way. So I refuse to cut you out of my life entirely. You won't always be like this. I'm convinced that you're going to grow until you're even better than your past self, the self that loved me completely. And more important, when you dumped me and I was nearly trampled to death, I finally understood that my love for you was no disease. No. It didn't mean that I was dependent on you, nor was I in love with you purely for physical reasons, nor did you fall in love with me because I am so fabulous. No. Our love was bigger. It was fate. I have no idea when you'll sense this aspect of fate, but you will. I am part of your fate. Whether our love is worth it or not is irrelevant. So what if there's someone nicer than you or prettier than you? It doesn't change a thing. Come and hurt me more. You still mean the same to me. I belong to you. Anger has turned me into a disgusting creature, and since you don't love me and you continue to hurt me, I treat you like an enemy. I tell myself that I must first transform the animosity and resentment in my heart or try to persuade you to transform these things so I can start treating you with goodness again and you could regain your previous state of beauty and kindness. It's as if I have to wipe the dirt off your face so you can reveal your original face to me. After your nastiness worsened to the point where I hated you and you hurt me worse still, it's not that I lost my willpower or wasn't free to walk out that door. In fact, the more I understand what you really mean to me, the more determined I become and the freedom I have to distance myself from your cruelty grows. Love is not merely need alone. And what is more important, than, and what is, more important is loving you and making my true nature comprehensible to you. Even far away, I still belong to you. The location of my love will never change. Nobody else can occupy that space. Distance isn't a means to abandon you. I can't bear the way you treat me. My unwillingness to remain in a relationship that has turned ugly or completely resists my good nature may also convince you to admit your mistakes. I won't indulge your dishonesty or bad behavior. I'll find a way to tell you when you're behaving badly. I just hope you won't leave me and will let me love you forever and let yourself always be loved by me so we can cultivate a love for eternity. I hope I won't be forced to leave you because I can't take it anymore. I've already lost you. I've got nothing more to lose. Even if you were to marry someone else and have children, or even if you died... I couldn't lose any more than I already have. Do you understand this at all? Um, that was the, those were the passages we, we chose collectively to read tonight. So um, I wanted to thank everyone. First, uh, Harrison Hyena for hosting us, um, and Fran Martin for joining us, which is just such a treat, um, but also, sorry, <laughs> thank you, um, also um, uh, Ursula Dawkins and Reverse Butcher, what an absolute honor, pleasure, and treat to hear you um, interpret sections of the book like that, I mean, just amazing, Beautiful. really lovely, <laughs> thank you. Um, so, and it's really nice, um, something I was thinking as while, while you were reading, um, uh, is that the whole process of translating a book like this is really quite collective and collaborative. It's the the myth of the author gets exposed even more in a translation where it's just not uh, one person. And so with with this book, too, it's been through many drafts and many hands, um, first with uh, some uh, Chinese friends who 
carefully went over word for word with me. Is, is this what she meant? Is that what? You, what do you think she meant? Um, and then with um, a, a dear friend who's a writer who doesn't speak Chinese who went through it and same thing. What do you think she meant? Um, who specializes in uh, queer women's memoir? Um, and then again through the hands of the editor, um, and now. Uh, again, alive as a living text to be interpreted um, by readers in this context, which is, I think, one of the pleasures and pain that Cho provides. It's a very vital text, and 20 years after she she died, um, people still dialogue with her. They still write her letters uh, in Chinese. Um, they still offer critiques. They still say they're pissed off at her. Um, we can get quite a, it's quite a living text in that way, so a chance to make it alive in uh, English, too, is really, really a treat. Um, so, in that spirit... Yeah. Yes, right. So if there are any questions that anyone has for any of us, really. Amazing book. Um, first question. Anyone? I was just um, thinking, as, uh, yeah, particularly while people were doing the reading, how much it reminds me of the sort of intertextuality of Bart the discourses of love, um, and maybe it was the particular sele- selections you read, but also the, the, the three voices, because... You're, I mean, you're all beautiful reading performers, but there's sort of the richness of it was somehow... Is that something intrinsic or is it just something other people found from this, this type of presentation? You've got your own microphone. Um, that, that's a great question, and actually I wonder if... I think that's a question that others could answer as well. Um, as experienced writers and readers will have... Uh, an interpretation. I think Cho's text is—it's a, a bad comparison for me to say, but in a way, there there, there are ways in which it has something in common with the I Ching. Um, first of all, because she says you can read it in any order, um, and second of all, because it—you it, it, can dive in at any point and you'll come away with a different voice. And it's really hard to choose passages. I, I found I, I would be curious to see what your impressions were as well, because there's so many different voices. None of them are representative in a lot of ways. And so there is a polyphony of, um, of ways of describing love and way of, ways of understanding it. I, I've interpreted that as part of her objective, that she wanted to complicate expression in that way, just that way. Um, but I, I wonder what other people think. Um, I just... I've, that, I love his discourse. is one of my favourite books. You know, so, um, I found it really interesting because I think we all pick passages that we... I don't know, I went very intuitively, like the things that I could find something in that I felt like I could sort of, um, you know, broadcast or that sort of resonated for me, and I guess we all did that. And I found it really interesting just now just actually gaining... It was really interesting how the book came to life in a whole new way, just listening to what each of us chose. I understood the book so much more deeply. It was really... I don't know. It's just, it's really, I really could feel everything shimmering off each other. So, I don't know. Eloise. Hi. Um, I had a question about the translation process. I was sure. just wondering how long you spent on the translation, how long that took you, and did you ever have moments of just kind of freakouts about whether your interpretation was what the author was wanting and... I guess I'm just curious about that process. Yeah, actually, uh, lots of freakouts, absolutely. <laughs> and, um, I had a, I had a tough act to follow in in Fran Martin, who um, who did the first ever translation of a work by Cho, a short story called Plato uh, Tonic Hair, uh, which is in a collection. If you ever want to read more of the milieu from the same uh, uh, set of authors in that period, um, her collection Angel Wings is gorgeous. And so it it was actually reading Fran's work early on that sort of intimidated me because I thought, oh, great, you know, to translate, you can't just translate. It's not Google Translate. You can't just say, oh, this means that. You actually have to be able to write, um, which I've never felt very confident about. Academic writing is one thing, but actually reproducing literature, rewriting it, which is, some people would argue translation is, uh, I was terribly frightened about that. So to address that complete and total insecurity, I um, that's why I, I consulted so many people along the way. I kind of kept shouting, hey, do you hear me? Waiting to see if anybody heard anything uh, and, and, and could feed it back to me. Um, so, um, I, and also with this book, especially because it's, it's experimental, the language, the tone, there's no, um, no explicit narrative to follow. There's nothing to really latch onto, which is, it's, 
it's intimidating and off-putting to the point where sometimes I almost want to apologize, like, oh, here, sorry, here's the book. <laughs> um, except that the gift that it gives you in exchange for that is an ability to enter at any point and a real freedom uh, to, to be in the present. There's no past, there's no future in this book. And that's, I think, partly why it's still so alive for Chinese readers now. Um, so translating that was really um, intimidating, and I, I felt like I had to return constantly to lean on friends and say, does this sound insane? W would you say that? How does that, what is, does that make any sense to you? And then I constantly returning back to the original, double-checking, triple-checking, does that at all relate? You know? So it's, if you picked up the original and compared them side by side, and it wouldn't be, you, you wouldn't think, oh, this is total artifice. It's clearly related. It's still the same text. Um, but uh, but it's been through many evolutions. I think we need to hear something from Fran about this at this point. Sorry, but like you've you've been in this whole thing, and I'm I'm quite interested in in you Anglo people sort of like being involved in this translating process and in reviving the whole other people's work. Thanks for that fairly vague question. <laughs> I'll try and say something. Um, there's sound like a whole lot of questions in one almost. I think there's maybe... Oh, goodness. There's a kind of historical question there. There's maybe a political question about inv being involved in sort of elsewheres yeah. as well. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that... that, that when I became involved in the kind of Taiwan queer scene that brought me to Chiel's work and indirectly um, kind of brought me to know Ari as well, um, we were all very young. <laughs> we're about the same age as Chiel would have been. Um, and we were kind of... Well, I was a post... I wasn't even a postgrad. I, I was like... A, I'd just done my degree in, at, at, at Melbourne Uni here and was in Taiwan trying to learn some more Chinese and kind of became involved in... Um, the queer scene there is an organic part of my own life, um, and ended up. I mean, there's kind of there. It's it's a bit like Chell's novel. There there isn't a, a kind of logical narrative to how it happens or why it happens or whether it's the right thing to happen. But somehow you get drawn into, oh, here's a really interesting book or a really interesting story. Maybe I'll translate some bits just to kind of play with with the language and see if I can render it in English or see if I can do whatever with it. And that was the case for me, not only with literary texts, but with activist texts and other, other kinds of things as well. And I don't know, it ended up getting pieced together into some research work and some translation, but I can't, it's sort of like hard to explain, <laughs> explain the why of it because it's so entangled with you know, my own life at the time. And, and I'm sure it's the same for Ari, isn't it? We're all kind of tangled up with a, with a group of people in a particular scene at a particular time, which was... Um, and is transcultural, transnational and involving a whole lot of different people from different places, but in this kind of not um, at that moment. Is that... I mean, I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Harry? No, I agree. <laughs> Complete, absolutely. That's really well put. And uh, it, maybe it is also partly the time of our lives, that particular moment uh, was such a vital scene. There was so much going on. I don't... I don't it's hard to know. I uh, couldn't be in two places at once, but it seems like... Would we have found that particular scene anywhere else? And you know, as a come, as a place to come of age, you know, even though to address a little bit Crusader's question about um, Anglo folks doing translations, that um, at that particular moment for me, I, I was so young that I was I was still growing up. I was still a little bit homeless emotionally and um, looking for role models, and that's where I found them. So it didn't matter to me that I'm not Chinese. It was I was looking for cool intellectual queers um, who seemed at home with themselves, and there they were. Um, so it made sense to kind of take it on a little bit personally. So it really was personal, yeah, and then somehow um, an undisclosed number of years later, <laughs> we're here, you know, do it working in academia and translating, and sometimes it feels like not just translating a text, but translating the 90s, to, you know. <laughs> so that, that what you said makes a lot of sense. I'm just thinking, it might, um, the ending of the first novel, which is called uh, Notes of a Crocodile, and it's about, it's a campus, campus novel about the, the protagonist, Lads, who is, uh, seems like a, a lesbian person who's going to university, um, and there's this kind of comic cartoon book, Crocodile, 
um, which is another character, which seems like a metaphor for the undisclosable character of, of the narrator's sexuality, perhaps. That novel ends with the crocodile sort of self-immolating, doesn't it? And, it, and it's, 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 it's a fairly clear... It's fairly clear why. It's being hounded by the media. It's subject to kind of intense crocodile phobia from the wider society. Um, <laughs> And it ends up sort of burning up and, and, and annihilating itself. And, and the, when you read the novel, you can see it's a critique. It's, a social, it's an obvious social critique about the treatment of this metaphorical crocodile. So, I mean, I think looking at that intertextually with the second novel and then with the, with the text of Chio's own life do, does, make, does kind of weigh in on the side of... Not to say that the two are disconnectable, you know, the emotional, personal reasons for suicide and the artistic ones but it kind of definitely suggests that that's that it's that, that there's some component of symbolism in there and I think also possibly we could think about it in terms of um uh what would you call it a sort of modern um semiotic system of suicide as queer protest particularly a young among um young female partners like same-sex female partners in, in modern Chinese and indeed in Japanese modern history where sometimes um, high school girls or, y- or young women of about that age um, will commit double suicide kind of as a couple and leave a, a, a note sort of saying why they did and there was a famous case of that um, out of the school that Chio herself went to a really elite um, girls school in Taipei in, when did that happen? The BNU incident in the early 90s or late 80s I think. Anyway it's just one in a, in a kind of series so we could see it in, in, in the light of that kind of um, signifying system as well. Any more questions or is that it? And sorry to end on that sort of like a note, but it's actually... <laughs> I want to say what uh, Ursula said. Hearing tonight three different voices reading that novel was so different than reading it by myself and having my own feelings about it, even the different sections that they read... I came out feeling so differently about all of those things and it was a beautiful thing to have you and these people here doing this book. So um, thank you, Ari.